All right, guys, welcome back to FedWatch. My name is Ansel Lindner, and this is a unusual episode because we did record a live episode yesterday interviewing Benjamin Dichter from Canada. He's a Canadian trucker that was involved pretty deeply with the quote-unquote leadership of the Freedom Convoy, and he had some updates for us. We wanted to talk about you know, the banking system, how that failed the Canadians in this this. Uh, situation or how they were backstabbed, I guess, by the financial system, uh, the effect of Bitcoin uh, and updates on the current situation. You know, the legal stuff isn't figured out. The financial stuff isn't figured out completely yet. So, um, you know, we wanted to pick his brain and I was unaware that he was even coming on the show. I was pleasantly surprised that he was because I I wanted to pick his brain. Uh, So go back and check that out. We touched on only about half of the stuff I had prepared for the FedWatch specific content about central banks and b- about macro. And so I wanted to do a, f- a whole other episode, a midweek update for you and talk about these things. Because I think right now it's really important to pull some threads, pull on some threads and uh, build a narrative of what's going on, a competing narrative. So I have a competing narrative to what most people have out there, what's going on in the financial system, even though I'm a Bitcoiner former gold bug economist, um, I have a different opinion of what many of the mainstream macro people, even the mainstream Bitcoiners, uh, I have a different view of them. And so I want to at least put my uh, views out there. So um, let's do a quick recap of the stuff we talked about on that other podcast and or other episode, and then get into this one. We talked about Sarah Bloom Raskin, and I think I'm the only person in Bitcoin that did write an article right here for Bitcoin Magazine on this whole situation that she's a controversial pick, uh, Raskin's views on Bitcoin, potential effect on Bitcoin, and testimony highlights, which I thought was uh, interesting. I, I pulled apart where Cynthia Loomis actually went in there and destroyed her with some pointing out some questionable activity, possibly uh, illegal activity that she, that Raskin was involved in. Um, but anyway, it looks like now she has been pulled from being, you know, she pulled herself uh, from the nomination for vice chair at the Fed. Of course, the reason why she was controversial in the first place, because she's progressive and she wanted to use the central bank for political agenda, for a political agenda. Um, as a globalist agenda, she's a climate change activist, um, and wants to make sure that I think the, the globalists wanted to make sure they had a, a friend on the high up at the Fed, right? They couldn't get Lael Brainerd up there. So they're trying to get Sarah Bloom Raskin as vice chair. That's my opinion. And now that has fallen apart. So this, the kind of thread or the narrative I want to build is that there is a competition here between Powell and Wall Street interests and the globalists. And the globalists in the US would be Democrats or neocons. So Clinton, Bush, Obama, Biden. Um, In Europe, it'd be people like Tony Blair, the EU, the ECB, those those type of places uh, and people. So that's one side. And the other side is Wall Street is the capitalists. That's that's the other side. Anyway, um, don't want to get too much into that. The Fed 
is raising rates. Of course, we talked about that. Uh, and Powell is looking more and more hawkish. Of course, that's the goal. The goal is to manifest what you want in the future by signaling it in the present. So that they, they use expectations to form that, that is their policy is expectations, not the actual um, QE or the actual fed funds rate, moving it up and down. It is the expectations. And so what they're trying to do right now by taking a more and more hawkish, aggressive stance, more it's, it look, it's looking more and more irresponsibly hawkish. Right. And one of the ways that uh, who is it? Paul Krugman said years ago, uh, probably two decades ago uh, about Japan is that they needed to act credibly. What is it? Uh, Credibly irresponsible to break out for QE to work. They need to be credibly irresponsible. So do it bigger, do go big or go home. Um, And so it's the, it's the opposite here. They have to, convince the market that they are going to be credibly irresponsible and tighten too much into a recession. And that way they will be able to get the result that they want, which they think that they can manifest lower inflation. Um, It's crazy. It's crazy. So we'll have to see how this, this develops, but okay. Uh, What else do I have? I, I also talked about the sanctions um, on the other episode, but what I, I wanted to cover here was the yield curve. And let me just share this, this, uh, yield curve image. So the, what you're seeing here is a snapshot three years in a row in March of the yield curve, March, 2020, 2021, and the current one in blue. So what, what can, well, first, let me introduce this is on the left side is the short end. And that is influenced mainly by fed, mainly by the fed It's influenced by fed expectations of what the fed is going to do. The right half, however, the long end of the curve is dictated by long-term growth and inflation expectations. And I don't mean CPI inflation. I mean, actual implied inflation what they what people think is actually the credit expansion type of inflation um that's what the right side and it doesn't mean the number here so it doesn't mean two percent that they expect two percent it means they expect zero because it's flat it's the shape of the curve that informs you what they're thinking or what is implied what the information implied in this this curve is and in the, the left-hand side of the blue line is steep because they are expecting uh, the Fed to raise rates. Now, if the Fed comes in and doesn't raise rates, uh, that's going to crash the curve very flat. Um, and that can, you know, of course, when, when you have an inverted, a flat or an inverted curve, it implies recession in the future. So... Uh, there are three inversions on this chart. So between the three and the five year, the seven and the 10 and the 20 and 30, uh, it's not the gold standard. The gold standard is the two and the 10, the two and the 10, but there are three separate inversions, meaning something is drastically wrong. And the two and the 10 is close to inverting, oh, is close to inverting. 
So let me share that image. This is a chart here of the two and the 10. And as this chart is going up, that means the spread is increasing between the two and the 10. The curve is steepening. As this chart is going down, the curve is flattening. The spread is decreasing. And every time it goes under zero, it's pretty quickly followed by a recession. And then after that recession, in the recovery or the reflation after the recession, it gets up to between 2.5 and 3%. And it's done that since the 90s. So for the last 30 years, it has reflated back to a spread of a you know just under 3%. And you can see in this reflation recovery after the corona crash, it only got up to 1.5. And now it's really headed down quickly to zero again. So something is dramatically wrong. It did, the economy never recovered and it started getting worse very quickly. And that is not a way to get inflation, right? If you have recession, you're not gonna have inflation. That what people don't understand or fight is the idea that credit is money. You know, bank reserves aren't money, credit is money. And that's why you have to have inflation to get growth in a credit-based economy. You have to have more credit to get growth. So they're all, an it's, a, it's an identity. Inflation equals growth. If you don't have growth, you don't have money printing. That's all you can say. The rest of it is just lipstick. Um, okay, let's... I think that's enough on the yield curve. Let, let me know what you guys think in the comments or whatever. Um, hit me up on Twitter at Ansel Lindner or in the comments to this video or the, the uh, wherever you're listening to the podcast. But I do have some more here. I wanted to get into um, this food crisis going on due to the sanctions and due to the war uh, and what it means. And so I pulled off this article here from France 24. Uh, don't know if that's a state operated media or not. I don't, not familiar with this outlet, but uh, the headline is war in Ukraine sparks concerns over worldwide food shortage. So I'm just going to read some of this here. The United Nations has warned of a hunger hurricane. The United Nations has warned of a hunger hurricane, which is already starting to be felt in North Africa. On March 14th, the UN secretary general uh, I want to say this name right. Um, Antonio Guterres issued a stark warning about the wider threats of the war in Ukraine, world hunger. Quote, we must do everything possible to avert a hurricane of hunger and a meltdown of the global food system, he said. The comment echoed a similar concern voiced by David Beasley, the head of the World Food Program, just a few days earlier. Quote, the bullets and bombs in Ukraine could take the global hunger crisis to catastrophic levels. Supply chains and food prices will be dramatically impacted, he said. The region, and this is Ukraine and Russia, accounts for 15% of the world's wheat production and nearly 30% of world exports, according to Sebastian Abis, a researcher at the French Institute for International and Strategic Affairs. Quote, but it's not just wheat, Abyss said. The two countries account for 80% of the world's sunflower oil production, and Ukraine is the world's fourth largest exporter of maize. So lots of, lots of problems. Catastrophic shortages. 
Egypt, Tunisia, and Algeria have already started to feel the sting of the wheat shortage. Quote, the Maghreb countries depend heavily on Ukrainian wheat, Abis said, and this year even more so because they have suffered a major drought, which has increased their food needs for foreign, increased their needs for foreign imports. For Egypt, it's catastrophic. Quote, Egypt is the world's largest importer of wheat and gets 60% of its imports from Russia and 40% from Ukraine. So 100% from this region uh, goes to Egypt. And that's a very populous country. I think it's the second most populous uh, Muslim country, isn't it? 100 million people or so, whatever it is. That's bad. Unsustainable prices for developing countries. North Africa is not the only region affected by the wheat shortage. Indonesia is the world's second largest buyer of Ukrainian wheat, and Pakistan, Turkey, and several countries in Central Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa depend on it as well. Quote, I'm particularly concerned about certain West African countries where cereal stocks are very low, especially in Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, and Senegal, Abi said. For these countries, the current prices are unsustainable. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that an additional 8 to 13 million people worldwide faced, face undernourishment if food exports from Ukraine and Russia are stopped permanently. I think that's an underestimate. They, I think it's at least 10 times more than that. It's not just this. It's also fertilizer which we have been talking about since December on FedWatch here. We've, we, if you go back and watch, I think it's December 22nd, you know, right before Christmas, uh, we talk about fertilizer impacts due to just high gas prices. This is before the Ukraine and Russia thing. So now fertilizer is even more disrupted. If you can even get potash anymore, I think that comes from Belarus and Russia. Um, so it's very bad. Not only is it the wheat, but it's the fertilizer. Most places in the world need fertilizer. And I'm thinking of Brazil. I'm thinking of Africa. I'm thinking of even Southeast, uh, Southeast Asia. They need fertilizer to grow their crops. And if fertilizer is four, 10 times more expensive, whatever it is, then food is going to be that much more expensive. So I think this is a big time underestimate of eight to 13 million. I believe it's 10 times more than that. Um, and they are, they refuse to use the word famine. They just say they face undernourishment. Like that's not going to get anybody's heart racing. You need to say we're, fa we're facing a continental famine here, guys. But then they, if they say that, then they're going to have to admit about what's going on in Ukraine. Anyway, let's continue. Wheat, a geopolitical issue. Faced with this threat and the possibility of new hunger riots, which broke out in several countries in 2008 over soaring grain prices, French agricultural minister Julien de Normandie has called on the European Union to cover for the lost Ukraine wheat. Quote, Europe must produce more, he said. Yes, the stimulus behind the Arab Spring was high food prices. A lot of people don't want to admit that, but that's the case. Um, I mean, the West helped it along, but it was the main stimulus was high food prices. And if food prices are going up again, I mean, 
half of the world is going to be destabilized by high food prices. And so if this leads to war, if this leads to revolution, like then you're facing even more famine and more disruption, right? So this could snowball and have unforeseen consequences, not just food, but political instability. And about Europe producing more, uh, that's not going to happen. They're, they're captured by the globalists. Quote, the minister announced it's certainly the most pragmatic position to take, but we are hardly going to be able to increase production at the snap of a finger between now and this summer, Abis said. We need to give producers the means and resources to do it, and we need to review the regulations for uncultivated land. In the past few years, Europe has adopted a policy to produce better. Producing more would mean revising the whole European agricultural policy. That's not going to happen anytime soon. It's like the best laid plans of the globalists. The best laid plans of the central planners are falling apart right now in front of our eyes. They're having to face hard truths about their climate policies, about energy policies, about their their crazy regulations, even around food production. They're all falling apart. Central planning doesn't work. Quote, wheat more than ever is becoming a geopolitical issue, he said, because behind all this, there is also the question of how countries will position themselves in relation to Russia. Will Russian grain exports continue? Considering the needs of certain countries, Moscow will most certainly continue to play an important role on the international scene. All right, that's it for this article. Yeah, it's not only this. It's not only the wheat it is the fertilizers. It is also droughts in North Africa. Droughts in Western U.S. is suffering a big drought. There is also a major bird flu outbreak in the U.S. Over 12 million birds have died, chickens and turkeys. Uh, and that's just getting started into the Midwest. So it could be 20 million before we know it. 20 million chickens and turkeys dying. That's going to force up egg prices and chicken meat prices and, and all of that. If you have rising energy prices, rising food prices, people can't buy what they wanted to. They can't, they had to spend the money on those things instead of buying a new car or buying a new tool or starting expanding their business or even paying an employee. Maybe that to fire employees, right? There, this is called demand destruction because you have to spend the money this in, you know, um, this way on food and energy, and you can't spend it elsewhere. So demand destruction happens and that can affect other commodity prices. So yes, oil, the price of oil and food can go up, but maybe the price of everything else goes down. That's what's going to happen in recession. There's going to be a big time demand destruction happening. Now in this situation, does that sound like inflation? Does that sound like there's too much money chasing too few goods? No, it's just the opposite. It's too little money chasing fewer goods. This is a deflationary scenario. It's not an inflationary scenario. All right, that's where I'm going to leave it for you guys today. Thanks for joining me on this extra edition of FedWatch. I hope it was bearable to watch. Maybe I'll have to do more of these in the future if you guys like it. Hit me up on Twitter to give feedback and all that stuff. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.